Robots are making their way into every area of our lives. Security robots roll around industrial parks at night, monitoring the area for intruders. Amazon robots tirelessly move packages around in warehouses, reducing the time and the cost of logistics. Self-driving cars have become a ubiquitous presence in cities like San Francisco. For a hacker in a dorm room or a researcher in a small lab, how do you get started with robotics? Certainly there are drones and other small options like AWS DeepRacer, but what is the equivalent of the Raspberry Pi for large, human-sized robots? Zach Allen is the founder of Slate Robotics, a company that makes large, human-sized robots that are at a low enough cost to be accessible to tinkerers, researchers, and prototype builders. Zach joins today's show to talk about the state of robotics and why he started a robot company. What Zach is doing is quite hard. He's a solo founder who has bootstrapped a robotics company from scratch. He has set up in a strip mall in Missouri, and he has a row of 3D printers to help create the parts for his robots. He programs and assembles these robots himself. Whether you're interested in robots or thinking about starting a hardware company, this episode could be useful to you. It's also useful because it shows just how far you can go with some persistence and some money to bootstrap a company. With that, let's get on with the show. Zach Allen, you are the founder of Slate Robotics. Welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Hey, Jeff. Thanks for having me. I want to talk to you today about robots and what you're building at Slate Robotics. Let's start with a state of the robots address. What are the industries today where robots are being widely used? That's a good question. Probably the easiest one that everybody would know would be manufacturing. By far the most successful application of robots would be um, a lot of the like where the big money is, is probably like the KUKA robots. These are the kinds of things that are in automotive manufacturing. I mean, they're able to like pick up whole cars and move them across their workspace within like one-tenth of a millimeter of precision. Probably other areas, probably the next biggest is probably just research and development. I can't think of anything else that's really had anywhere near the success of uh, manufacturing. Why is that? What are the shortcomings of robots today? Well, that's a great question. Everybody has their own opinion about what that could be. I happen to think that price and cost are two of the biggest problems uh, with the state of robotics today. So if we were to analogize robotics to personal computing, you know, back in the late 60s, early 70s, computers weren't very popular. And in fact, most people thought nobody would ever need a computer for anything until the price came down to a point where, you know, everyday people could go out and purchase one. And then engineers got excited about it. They started building useful applications and it was kind of off to the races from there. So I think if that analogy ends up working for robotics, the big problem today is that they're just too expensive and they're at a point where the engineer's can't afford the kinds of robots that they would want to play with and to program on. So that's pretty much the whole point of the company and, and what we're doing. So when did you get involved with robots? 
almost exactly two years ago. I was a software engineer, so a little bit about my story. I graduated from college with a bachelor's in Spanish, um, a minor in criminology and in global studies. And basically, I was going to go work at my dad's place. He said, if I went off and got my MBA, you know, maybe I could do something in financing. But I ended up working there doing some low-end IT stuff, and I learned how to program and how to build software. And I ended up over the three years I was there kind of managing all of their technology and building all of their applications, supporting all of it, working on their databases. So that's kind of how I got into technology. And the transition to robotics was really through uh, my just learning machine learning for fun. Uh, I picked up the book called Deep Learning by Ian Goodfellow. And that was kind of my introduction to the world of neural networks. And, you know, I was just thinking one day, wouldn't it be great if I could take some of this knowledge and try to apply it on a robotic platform? And uh, like all good startup founding stories, I scoured the internet for solutions and come to find out really the kinds of robots that I had in mind, you needed to spend anywhere from like 75 grand to half a million bucks. So that's really how I got started. And that was about two years ago. And in surveying the robotics landscape, you came to a, a perspective that there is an orthodoxy in the robotics industry. What do you mean by that? What is the orthodoxy? So I, I came across the orthodoxy by building my own robots and publishing them online. I've, I've published a few on like the robotics subreddit, uh, which is like, I, I suppose, where all the clergymen hang out. And if it's a personal project, they'll look at your robot and then they'll praise it. But the second it's a product, they've got nothing but negative things to say about it. Some of the things that they believe to be true that are false, that have allowed me to have whatever level of success I've had so far, are things like, you know, DC motors aren't very useful for building robotic arms. And 3D printing is not a technology you can utilize for a production product. You know, it's great for prototyping, but you can't actually make a product and have it be any good if you use 3D printing. So these are kind of the things that tend to get, that they get the most upset about, about our company. And they're they're just false. And frankly, if, if they weren't true, then a company like this wouldn't even be possible, which I think is part of the reason why nobody's been able to quite crack the code yet. So these different orthodox beliefs, are there any strong underpinnings to them? Like, why do people believe that you can't, for example, 3D print components of a robot? So anybody that's that designs and builds robots mostly are probably coming from a manufacturing background. So they look at the kinds of robots that we're building through that same manufacturing lens where you, you have to have an incredibly high level of precision in the parts for the robot, in the robot itself. Everything has to be unbelievably rigid and tight. And, you know, 3D printing is not known for its high degree of precision. I mean, you know, these kinds of things tend to be machined down to you know, they, they talk in terms of one one thousandths of an inch is typically the metric they use for, for any precision machining. So 3D printing is just kind of strange for them. And, and to be fair and to give them credit, you couldn't use this technology for the manufacturing market. Like our robots today would not be well suited for, you know, intense 
industrial application where you need a really high level of precision with each movement, where you pick things up, where you place them down, everything has to be super, super precise. So they're kind of wrong and also correct at the same time. So really, I think the key innovation of this company has really been more in just seeing a market where most people don't. And that market specifically is robots for tinkerers. Right. Mostly machine learning engineers. I mean, that's been you know, if I think back to why I started the company, that makes sense. For some reason, it took me really a, a year or so to come back around and realize, oh yeah, the reason I'm building this at all is because I was interested in machine learning and wanted to apply it apply it myself, apply robotics to machine learning. So by selling to, to this market that, you know, people aren't even sure exists, they're also more willing to put up with the fact that, you know, it doesn't have the one one hundredths of a millimeter of precision in its movement. And uh, they tend to be a little bit more optimistic about what software can do to, you know, account for that fact. And they're also not doing manufacturing. So it's it's more for fun and education. So our product seems to, to make sense in that regard. So if I'm a machine learning researcher today, and I want to get into robotics, maybe my options are I could pick up a drone from DJ, DJI, maybe I could get a Lego Mindstorms kit. I guess Amazon has these new little cars that drive around or something that you can program. What are the other options for for machine learning people who want to get into... Oh, there's also the NOW robots, uh, the NAO. I think those things are useful. Right. Tell me about the landscape of the machine learning robots. That's a good question. Do you know off the top of your head how expensive the NOW robots are? I have no idea, actually. I think they range like at the low end at like $8,000. Really? And these yeah. these are these little like two foot tall little robots, right? Right, right. And they don't have, I think their their fingers on the, the hands can move, but they're not designed to really pick anything up. So, you know, it, that's a good example of, uh, you know, it's really expensive. It, that would be a big investment for just an engineer to go out and purchase for themselves. And you're still really limited in terms of the applications that you can develop on a platform like that. So, you know, in terms of the landscape, I mean, you can go on the low end on Amazon. They do have, you know, really cheap robotic arms uh, that are going to be, you know, built for like a desktop. They're going to be pretty small. I don't know. I, I'm sure there's options out there for drones that, that might be uh, useful for development. I can't think of any off the top of my head that are like really designed for development specifically. Um, and I don't know what it would take to get like a DJI drone to get that to where you're hacking on it yourself. I mean, it really there's this huge gap in terms of like, you're either going to spend like $200 for one of these tiny desktop arms, or you're going to spend like, you know, 10, 20, $30,000 for, you know, some of the high end stuff. And it, the cheapest, like proper human sized mobile development platform on the market, besides what we're building, you're going to spend Fifty or sixty thousand dollars. I don't know if you've heard of Fetch Robotics. They build a mobile manipulator. That's a pretty good little robot, but it's they don't off they don't show the price on the website, which is never a good sign. And I think they run like sixty or seventy thousand. Mobile manipulator. So this is probably 
what is it like a platform where it can roll around and then it's got like a robotic arm on top of it what, what's a mobile manipulator i mean that's a term that can be used to describe anything that can manipulate the world around it and is also mo- mobile so sometimes you'll see like a roomba with like a small little robotic arm on top of it and you know that's technically a mobile manipulator generally i see that term used to apply to uh to things that are human sized that do have an arm on top of it. So like with, with the Fetch Robotics mobile manipulator, it's a round base that maybe is like 500 millimeters in diameter. It probably is four foot tall. It uh, has uh, you know a head with a camera and then it has one arm hanging off the front of it. And then there's a flat workspace on the top of it. Um, and that's that kind of you know structure is really what I have in mind for the company and the kind of products that I want to build. You know, if I if I'm an engineer that's wanting to really play on something and have a really, you know, useful platform that I can develop applications on, you know, something that's tall, that has a, you know, workspace on it, that has, you know, a proper like human-sized arm, has a head with a camera, and then a base that can, you know, move around somewhat quickly. I mean, then your your realm of applications, the the total number of things that you can build on there is pretty endless. And that's what I think is awe-inspiring. So really, the idea is to try to build those kinds of platforms that right now, at the very low end, $60,000, you know, at the high end, a couple hundred thousand dollars, trying to build those kinds of platforms. But, you know, for a price that I think is, will at least open the eyes of engineers a little bit, you know, within the four or $6,000 range. I was thinking about some applications that you could do with your robot. It's not a custom robot. The idea is it's it's going to be kind of a mass, more mass application, or for researchers at least. It's a human-sized robot. It's about the, I don't know, what is it, five feet tall, six feet tall? Yeah, it's about five, five and a half feet tall. Five and a half foot tall, beautifully designed robot with a couple robotic arms and a four-wheeled platform on the that rolls around. And you could do things like maybe make a robot butler out of it. You could have a robot that drives around your your house and says, you know, danger or something, or that like shows you security camera footage or something. What are some, what are some potential applications that you think people could tinker around with this? Machine learning researchers. Yeah, you know, there's a spectrum of applications where on the the low end of that spectrum, you have the kinds of applications where you don't need any new technology to be developed. You know, you don't have to do too much heavy lifting. That would be things like, you know, just building a web interface for it. So you can log in to your robot and drive around and, and you know, check on your house or your office or whatever to like the high end where how do we, you know, train the robot to be able to cook or clean set the table, those kinds of things are going to be really, really sophisticated applications. And I don't have any experience building that kind of stuff, but I look forward to trying to build those kinds of applications. I mean, I I don't know what the killer app for personal robotics is going to be, but, you know, it might be something like cooking you dinner, doing your laundry, you know, setting the table, uh, making your bed, you know, maybe someday somebody is able to crack the code with that. And that ends up being kind of the VisiCalc of personal robotics. And I think that's how the future unfolds here. So you've been hacking on these. You've gotten a robot fully built. 
I want to know about the process for doing that because I think you got the you got the cost down to a pretty good place. I was looking at the site today; it was something like sixty four hundred bucks or six thousand bucks. How many of the components that you built this robot out of were you able to take off the shelf? So pretty much everything plastic on the robot is custom designed and manufactured, including a lot of the metal components like the hubs and motor mounts and stuff like that. In terms of off-the-shelf components, I mean, things like motors, the sensors for angle detecting, the microcontrollers, the camera and the head, the computer that we use on the robot, um, it's an NVIDIA Jetson. Those are all off-the-shelf parts. But yeah, with the TR1, there is a ton of, of custom components. And that's part of the reason why uh, we've had to keep raising the prices for it, because uh, it just takes a very, very long time to, to manufacture one of these. You don't have a background in manufacturing. How did you learn to build a robot? Did you read textbooks or Stack Overflow? What was your process? Mostly playing around with 3D modeling software, like like the CAD software, like Autodesk Inventor and Fusion 360, and just kind of trying to come up with ideas. I mean, the easy part is like building the base, designing that, because that's just a couple of wheels, you know, around a frame, you know, even up to the head and the neck, like you can pretty easily wrap your head around how things like that would work. The really hard part of any good robot that that's, along this kind of category is the arm design. And that's ultimately what takes so long to try to build. So I started with the TR1's arms. I started with like trying to work with stepper motors and I spent a long time time trying to get that to work, but stepper motors don't have enough power for the, the size of the arm, you know? So it was just a ton of trial and error. I ended up trying to take an open source robot arm design. I just like, okay, well, if that works, I'll just throw it on the, the robot. So I've taken that design and I've just modified the ever living crap out of it to where it's, you know, not even resemblable to the original design anymore because you have to fit in all the motors. I mean, that was a design that was built for stepper motors, but I had to use DC motors that have a lot of torque. And I also have to fit in the angle encoders everywhere. So it's just trial and error. It took me, you know, the better part of a year to get something that even worked at all. So I guess just a just relentless commitment to try to figure it out. And this is just you working on it, right? Right, right. So I first started working on it beginning of 2017. I was employed through August of that year when I incorporated the company and went full time with it. And then, you know, probably spent about eight months in my garage working with that. Got some pre-orders. Uh, and was able to get an office space where I'm at currently. And this is mostly bootstrapped, correct? You haven't raised any money for it? Right. Yeah, it's just, it's mostly been funded by orders and my dad. And I've also put, you know, ten, fifteen thousand $15,000 into the business. And that capital has gone towards buying 3D printers, but you've got like a wall of 3D printers in this, I guess... This, what is it, like a storefront that you've revamped as a machine shop? Yeah, yeah. So I've got, uh, so two doors down, we've got McAllister's Deli. The one right next to us is uh, a vape shop, which I'm fairly certain they sell some sort of illicit illicit substances out of. And then to the right of us, we've got some sort of uh, family doctor and a salon. I mean, it's just a, it's just a strip mall and uh, it works. Right. And so help paint the picture of this 
machine shop. So you've got and then there's there's some great videos on YouTube that you've taken of your machine shop, which is very clean, by the way. You're a very clean tinkerer. You've got this wall of 3D printers. You've got some computers. You've got some some monitors on the wall, and then you've just got these like six foot tall robots that are in there, and like random robotic arms around there. What else do you need? To tinker on robots, do you need like a some trays full of processors and and motors and stuff? And where do you get this stuff? Well, if you have a three D printer, that's a big part of what you need. And then on top of that, if you can, just finding somewhere to buy the motors and the sensors, and you need some sort of onboard computer for the robot. You need microcontrollers. I mean, all those you can buy online. And you know what I did was just design the parts out on the CAD software and just think about, okay, well, I probably need this motor. So I'd, I'd go out and buy that motor. And, you know, like I didn't know anything about like computing torque requirements or, you know, there's some coefficient of friction, but I don't know what number to put there. So, you know, it's just a lot of trial and error and trying to find a motor that works. So, you know, I've bought, you know, a bunch of motors that don't work to ultimately find the one that does. And yeah, just a lot of time to figure it out. I mean, really just a computer and a 3D printer, you're pretty much there. Describe some of the mistakes that you've made in your process of learning to build robots. So I, I'm working on right now, I'm hoping, and in fact, by the time this podcast launches, I, I will have launched the next version of our product, the TR2. And that is the culmination of all the mistakes that I've made in both the design and the manufacturing of the TR1. So I've got a long list of, of things that I could talk about there. Number one is just how complicated the design is. I mean, I don't know why I didn't see this, but you know, there's like hundreds of custom parts on uh, the TR1. And you know, every new part that you put onto a design is something that has to be kept up with, has to be manufactured. That's one extra thing that has to be assembled. It's really complicated. So I've cut the just the number of parts down with the next robot by like 10%. So that's that's one thing, just complicated design. The arm design right now is it kind of ties in with the complexity, but I started very much with like here's how I want the arm to look. You know, I want it to have this number of joints and I want it to be this long and you know, I kind of want it to almost model a, a human arm. And then, okay, now I'll just try to figure out where to put all the sensors, to put all the motors and all that kind of stuff. You know, there's no room for the wires, so the wires have to be run outside of the arm. So with TR2, I've started with the actuator. How do I design the perfect actuator, the perfect, that has, you know, the motor, the sensor, has all the electronics, has some other features like torque uh, sensing uh, built into it. It has a metal tube going through the axis of the actuator so you can run all the wires through it. So I've started with a great actuator design and work backwards from there. Okay, now how do I build an arm given this actuator? And that just makes for a much, much simpler design. It makes it much more effective and you're able to build in a lot of features without adding much complexity. You know, it's kind of more distributed in terms of the design because all the complexities just built into the actuator, but the actuators reused. The, the early versions of the, the robot I sold for like most people that have ordered one got this thing for like $3,000. And that's just like way too low. Like we've just been shelling out cash trying to fulfill those orders. And like we haven't made any money on those early orders. I mean, that was a, just a 
stupid mistake, mostly because I didn't know how long it would take to fulfill these. You know, it really required like a team of like four or five people working around the clock to maybe make like one every two weeks, which is not a recipe for success. But, you know, it gave me the opportunity to learn those lessons and um, apply it to future products. Yeah, I don't know. Besides that, uh, those are probably the big ones. So once somebody has a robot, a TR1, that's the robot you've built, how do they program it? You have the world of options at your disposal. You know, I guess there's an easy way and a hard way. The easy way would be to plug into the ROS ecosystem. The TR1 is fully supported on ROS and has most of the low-level stuff and low-level integrations built out, including, you know, how do you communicate with the microcontrollers that actually move the motors and actually read the, the sensor data, including... There's a, a robot description format that uh, describes where all the joints are, describes the geometry of the robot. That's all been built out so you can fully visualize the data. And there's also a, a package called MoveIt that we've integrated with that allows you to do inverse kinematics really easily. Basically, you just describe your goal position that you want the end effector to be at given a certain orientation, and then MoveIt will calculate how to move the arm given the current state, to that particular position. So by building your application on top of ROS, you, you get all of these features on top of it where you can visualize it, you can do inverse kinematics and that kind of thing. So there, you would just need to build a ROS node. That's going to be your particular program. And the way ROS works is you're subscribing to certain ROS topics, and then you're also publishing to other ROS topics. So let's say if you take a, you know, let's take the web interface program, you're going to build a server that's going to accept commands from the browser client. And then that server is just going to publish data. Like if I press the arrow key, it's just going to publish, you know, move uh, the base forward, move the base backwards by just publishing on those ROS topics. So that makes building higher level applications without having to get too worried about how the low level mechanics work, that makes it really easy. And ROS is is just this kind of message passing bus. It's built on top of HTTP. So really, even within the ROS ecosystem, you should be able to work with just about any library that you want to work with or, or any programming language you want to work with. But C++, Python, even Node.js, I mean, these are all pretty well supported within ROS. ROS has been around for more than 10 years. It has all of this robotics middleware in it. C can you talk more about the ROS ecosystem? And is there a, a broad palette of open source ROS things to take off the shelf? Yeah, there's a lot, a lot of things. You know, I had mentioned MoveIt. You know, that's a package that we didn't build that we were just able to borrow because it's open source. And just given the robot description, you're able to integrate your robot and, and all of your specific hardware into MoveIt. So, you know, that's something we didn't have to figure out how to do inverse kinematics or anything like that. All of the visualization software, there's a program called Arviz that will visualize your, your robot and um, show the joint state and just the overall state of the robot. So one thing is, you know, you're programming something and let's say the the arm isn't quite moving to the position that you want. You can pull up Arviz and you can see what the robot thinks its current state is 
And you can compare that to what you actually see in the physical world is what the actual state is. So you, that, that helps with debugging. You know, maybe you need to go back and recalibrate certain joints or something like that. There's also the simulation side, which is really cool. Gazebo is a visualization package that plays nicely with ROS. And that's something I've used before. That way you're able to build programs that work on the simulation and you're able to work within that environment first. You're not, you're, you don't have to, you know, risk breaking something, whether that's on the robot or, you know, in the physical world, it's really easy to restart your program and restart the environment. So it often is much easier to work first within simulation and then port that same program over because you're just using the ROS topic interfaces and uh, you're using ROS, you're able to take that same program and just run it directly on the hardware uh, without really doing anything different other than, you know, starting up your hardware interfaces instead of the simulation. So there's just a lot of stuff like that. And and that's probably just kind of scratching the surface. I, there's a whole bunch of other ROS packages that I, I don't even know about, you know, I'm sure would be really, really useful for whatever you're building. Let's say I've bought a TR1. I know some machine learning code. I'm familiar with writing machine learning software. And let's say I want to write a code to make my TR1 a personal robot butler. What would be my steps to programming the TR1 to make a butler? That's a really good question. I guess that's ultimately kind of an architecture question. You've probably got a million options there. You know, if you're building on top of ROS, you probably would be well suited to build a program or build a node that's going to listen to voice commands. And all that one node is only worried about just listening to, you know, has somebody commanded the robot to do something and that's going to involve natural language processing, a whole bunch of stuff that I don't know all that much about. And then you could have your other node that's going to be doing your computer vision stuff. And maybe given if that node notices something, then it's going to pass a message on to another program that's just, you know, worried about, you know, maybe it passes a message that says, hey, there's a cup on this table. And then this program over here is going to take that information and actually move the arm to that position, building a really general purpose platform like that. I mean, that's like, I think probably the next really hard problem to be solved. And it's just going to take a lot of work. You know, I've seen people work with, like there's one customer that's, I think he's been trying to do reinforcement learning on the robot. I, I don't know what degree of success he's had so far, but with that, I mean, that's a much simpler problem where you just spin up one node and you're going to train the data either using an Xbox controller or something where you're going to try to uh, show the model, here's successful cases. And then given that data, you can run the program through and, and maybe you have like just a button you press that says you succeeded or, you're fi- or you failed and, and that's how, how you can do it. But gosh, there's a million different ways to, to skin that cat. Have you written much software for the TR1 yourself or have you more just tried to present the minimum amount of software on there? What kind of software have you had to write? Most of what I spend my time writing is going to be more on the low level end, building out the, you know, one example is the interface between the main computer and the microcontrollers, the the NVIDIA Jetson and the Arduinos. And, you know, how do I interface properly between those two and make sure that, 
you know, if data gets dropped, how do we handle it? You know, implementing checksums and that kind of thing. That's I've been spending a lot of time the past week or so working on that. You know, also providing the support for Gazebo. I mentioned Move It, all the visualization stuff. I mean, that all is going to be. I, I have to write a description file of the robot that has to be specific to the hardware and describe all of the joints and making sure all of that works well and you know that the grippers work and that kind of thing. So mostly what I've spent my time on is the low-level stuff. I've worked on building, I mentioned the Xbox controller, you know, where you can take the Xbox controller, run the demo, and then you can control all of the joints with that Xbox controller. You know, I've mentioned the browser interface for controlling the robot. Those kinds of things are mostly what I've worked on. But I am looking forward to over time, once that low level stuff gets to where it's working really, really well, focusing more on the high level stuff. And, and, you know, I don't know if I would prefer not have to rely on our customers to build the killer app. You know, if we can build that ourselves, that'd be great, you know, because I don't, I don't want people buying this robot thinking that they're essentially just working for us, you know, so whoever comes up with it, great. But that's going to be a big part of probably what, you know, as I transition over the next year or two, spending a lot more time on is the software. There's a large graveyard of robotics companies that have raised a lot of money and failed. And I've seen you write about some of these. What are some of the lessons that you take away from these companies that have raised, you know, hundred plus million dollars, tried to build robotics companies and failed? Rethink Robotics just shut down. A big problem that robotics companies have is that they play in markets that they know nothing about. So if I'm a robotics PhD and I'm going to go off and try to raise some money to start a robotics company, typically people will go, okay, well, maybe I'll try to build a robot for the elderly. I'll try to build a robot for healthcare. I'll try to build a robot for um, uh, manufacturing. And you know, you're somebody who spent your entire life studying how to build robots, which is awesome. You don't know anything about these markets. And it's fairly naive to just come in and say, well, you know, I don't know anything about this market, but I'm going to try to build a, a product that the market cares a lot about. I think that's typically the fundamental error of robotics engineers is just trying to build a product within a market they don't know anything about. I mean, I, I think that's really what happened to Rethink Robotics is that they built, I think, some of the best robots you know, even for the price to date, but, you know, they didn't have the level of precision that manufacturing required. You know, they had these uh, series elastic actuators that were great because they can measure torque. And, you know, if they bump into something, they can reverse. And and so it was a very hardware focused solution to, you know, how do I deal with bumping into something made for a great robot, but the customers that use these they want something with much higher precision. And the series elastic actuators just can't provide that. So that's just an example of they built a product and then they went off and tried to find the solution to it. And then, you know, Rethink had Universal Robotics come along and build a, a robot for the similar price, but just specs that blew it out of the water. And, you know, I think that's ultimately what killed Rethink Robotics. But, you know, there's nothing wrong with trying to build robots for healthcare or for the elderly or for paraplegics. I mean, these are the things that like sound really nice, but there's a sense of arrogance to think that 
you know anything about what it's like to be elderly or to be paraplegic, you know? And so to, to build a product like that, that they truly care about, I don't know, it, it, you would probably need a lot of consultation. And, and I don't know, it would take a lot to, to know truly what that market wants and desires. So you can really fill a true need. And it's not just, you know, another kind of me too product. So the idea is rather than trying to build a domain specific robot, you're trying to offer a platform that maybe domain experts like some elderly care expert could build robots on top of. I mean, yeah, ultimately, that's the kind of person that you want building those kinds of companies, somebody that knows a lot about what it's like to be elderly, you know, somebody that's worked a lot with people who are elderly. And ultimately, that's probably who you would want to be making all of the decisions about the kinds of features and specs of the product, not just the engineer who doesn't know anything about the market. Because there's a big difference between, you know, a great robot and, you know, one that actually serves a need. And the element of price point that you talked about earlier, I've heard you say that there are these companies, you know, these companies are building mostly expensive robots. And the idea is that they're going to reduce the cost over time. And your position is that you should instead start with a low-cost robotics platform and maybe lever up into higher-value products over time. What makes you so sure that that is, that is a good way to go about it? Because it seems like it's not... I mean, I, I get the, 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 the demographic you're going after is machine learning researchers, maybe at a university where they couldn't afford a $50,000 robot. But there also are big industrial arenas where, you know, maybe they they would be willing to pay $50,000 for for a robot. So why start with that low cost platform? I think just practically, you know, it's much easier to go with a, you know, if I if I have a cheap robot, it's much easier to go in and upgrade the motors, upgrade the sensors, you know, upgrade maybe plastic parts to metal parts. I, I think that's a lot easier to move up like that than it is to take a really expensive robot. I mean, you're not going to take a Boston Dynamics, you know, Atlas and just say, oh, well, just throw some smaller motors in there. You know, it's just, it's not going to work. Like the robot just won't work after that. So I think there's a practical element to that. You can also ask, you know, why wasn't it IBM that was at the, I think they did pretty well, but you know, why weren't they at the forefront of the personal computer revolution. You know, I think it was Steve Wozniak went to HP 10 times saying, here's the Apple II design or the Apple I design, like, please take it. And they just ignored him. And then he went off and started the company and, you know, the rest is history. You know, why, why didn't they take that? You know, they had that opportunity right there in front of them. And, you know, the big guys with a lot of money, I mean, first of all, I, I can't build a high-end expensive robot because I don't even have the money to like even build a prototype for a you know half million dollar robot. So I can't go up. They could go down the market, but they're going to see the same thing that HP saw with Steve Wozniak, which is this is a tiny market. You know we're going to invest you know a couple million bucks into this market that maybe is you know only a couple hundred grand a year. That doesn't make any sense. But I, I talked about the really the true innovation of the company is just purely marketing where I see this market as something that's going to be growing at a tremendous rate over the next 10 years. And I believe that to be true, but the big companies either don't see that or they don't believe it to be true. So that's probably why the big players don't, don't, 
come down the market and play in the space that I do because it just doesn't make sense. I want to know about your psychology as you've been building this company because I've seen these videos of you just hacking in your rented storefront space and it's it's kind of epic. I mean, you're just building a human-sized robot by yourself and I mean, I I've, I've been recording a podcast by myself for for a while and you know, the early days in particular were a, a little bit psychologically stressful because I was just learning how to do this thing that I didn't really know how to do and that was just a podcast and you're doing a robot. Can you take me through some of the the psychological challenges and how you've overcome them and what your state of mind is today? Yeah, you know, with any startup and I'm sure you've experienced this a bunch, you have, you know, times where you're just to the moon as far as just things are going incredible and you're just on cloud 9. And then, you know, on the other end, you you have days where it's just tremendously, you know, discouraging and you know, you're asking yourself you know, is this going to work? So I've definitely had a whole bunch of days like that. I mean, at this point, I've had those experiences and it continues to work out one way or another. So I I do still to this day have, have days where I come in and just looking at the robots and being like, this is kind of the craziest startup idea. And I don't know how this is going to work. But, you know, every time I've said that it's worked out one way or another. So you know, I'm just assuming the train's going to keep going. And another huge motivating factor is that uh, there doesn't seem to be anybody else that's working on this problem. There doesn't seem to be anybody else that believes the kind of things that I believe about how the future of robotics is going to play out and the kinds of robots that we can build today and the kinds of robots that we need to build today. There's nobody working on these sorts of I mean, there's no, there's nobody building the kind of products that I'm, I, I'm envisioning and that I'm building today. So, you know, if I gave up, you know, really the easier route would be just to give up and go get a normal job. You know, life gets a lot easier if I did that. But the most discouraging thing that would come from that is just knowing that that would just push off the development of personal robots just that many years out into the future. You know, how much longer is it going to be until someone else comes along and learns the things that I've learned and is, is, is willing to stick with it. So, you know, maybe if another company comes along one day uh, and, and, you know, really truly understands the things that I know and is able to do it better, you know, maybe the world doesn't need me for this. But, you know, that's the number one thing that keeps me going. How are you finding customers? Reddit. You know, the first customers that I got, I posted on the machine learning subreddit and I got a lot of, of feedback from that. So that's where my first handful of uh, order reservations came from. And, you know, that's going to be the strategy going forward is just make compelling products and just post them online. And if it, if it's a, if it really grabs people's attention, if it's the, the right kind of product, I just trust that it'll get the recognition it deserves. I mean, the, the easy thing is finding people that are willing to listen to me. You know, one of the harder things is finding the right customers. Like I've, I've been featured in our local newspaper, you know, our, our local news channels and stuff as well, but those aren't the right customers. You know, the, the machine learning engineers are harder to get in front of, but I think if you make a compelling product and you show them what's really possible, I trust that, you know, we'll be able to generate enough sales off of that. Well, Zach, it's been really interesting talking to you and I'm inspired by what you're doing. Is there anything else you'd like to add about 
consumer robotics or or just your your experience or what you're doing at Slate? Yeah, I mean, I I just you know I hope a lot of people are are willing to you know ride this train with me, and all I really hope to do is just evangelize how I think personal robotics is going to come about, and that it's not that far away, and that if we can build the right hardware, it can be affordable enough. And we can get a bunch of engineers who are excited about that, both as you know potential employees at Slate Robotics and also as customers, then we can really begin to build the kind of future that we all hope and dream of one day. You know, one where you don't have to go home and cook dinner. You don't have to make your bed. You don't have to pick up clothes. You can just focus on what you know best. You know, you can just focus on your craft you know, whether that's software engineering or machine learning or whatever, and you don't have to deal with as many distractions. And that's just the future that I'm I'm hoping to build. And it's going to take a ton of people and a lot of energy to get there. So uh, I just hope people will join us on that and, you know, check out our website and, you know, come be a part of it. Very inspiring. Okay. Well, thanks, Zach. I appreciate you coming on the show. Yeah. Thanks a lot, Jeff. Wow. 